When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Alright, so, hey, what's going on, everybody? This is the Talking Texas Podcast. My name is Daniel. It's the Kid Double H. Hey, everyone, it's Carl Anke. And this is our World Cup preview for Group E. Go back and listen to Group A, B, C, and D. Those should be wherever you listen to podcasts. And, yeah, we're going to start today with Spain. I don't know where to put Spain, guys. I'm just going gonna to leave it in your hands. I don't think Spain can be a dark horse. I think that's an impossibility because it's Spain. But I don't know where to place them. They're good. Luis Enrique is one of the best managers in the international football sphere. This is a team that could reach the final. Damn, I don't see them that way. I absolutely understand why you don't see them that way. Because the question mark is, will Alvarado Morata sort his life out? <laughs> can Morata... No, Mar- no can- actually, no, I can answer that for you. No, is the answer. Can, can, Marata- can he lend the offside rule? No. Can Morata chain together enough good performances no. at this World Cup to get the job done? Because if he can, I think they're getting the final. Why are you asking that? No. I'm really oh, high God. on this team. I'm really high on this team. I look at their defense. I'm like, mm. I look at their goalkeepers. I'm like, mm. I look at their striker situation. I'm like, mm. the only thing that gives you hope is like the midfield and maybe Ansu Fati if he can string together six fit games. I'm like, okay, maybe they could get to a quarters or a semi, but the highness... On Spain, I don't get it. Maybe no, 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 for me, I think why I share what Carl says is because this is a, a very open world ball cup. Almost everybody can beat everybody. I mean, if we, we got Portugal, Spain, Brazil, France, Argentina all together in one room, they can beat each other. So this isn't 98 or 0 where's that one, man? You want to avoid Brazil, man. Man, you want to avoid Italy, man. Man, you want to avoid Germany, man. There isn't that team of like, oh, man, it's going to be hard to beat this team. I just think that if Spain pulled up to Brazil, Brazil will be favorites, but Spain can beat them. But I think, yeah, but Carlos Reyes has been like a goal scorer away from me to say, oh, they can win. They can win this now. The reason why they can't win is because there's a dude who has been a professional for over a decade and doesn't know what the offside rule rule is. So if you have a striker who is still learning the basics of the offside rule, that's a problem. But I think Pedro is one of the best midfielders. Forget it, he's one of the best midfielders in the world. And Sofati, I don't know whether he's going to be, be, be taken by Enrique because of his fit, fitness. Ferran Torres is a, is, a, is a bomb. So I can't see them winning it because that, that's gold generation was a special generation. I think that that's Iniesta, Javi, David Villa in there. And how do they win the World Cup? Yeah, Iniesta scored that winning goal in the thingy. But who came through against Paraguay? Who came through against Portugal? David Villa. And they don't have that guy like, man, when the chips are down, Villa is going to take us out and really pull us through. So That's so sick. This is a question I came up with too late in the game. But it was, if you could bring back one legend 
for your team to fix a problematic area in the squad, who would you bring back and why? He didn't even think. He was just David Villa. Mm-hmm. He's like, I maybe thought about bringing Piola or Prime PK back, but instant David Villa. But anyway, I got to talk with Kai Iliev, Jay de Position on Twitter about Spain. He's a, he's a journalism student that lives in Madrid. So yeah, this is the conversation I had with him. My name is Kaeliev. I'm a journalism student in Madrid. I followed Spanish football for the last 10 years. Uh, my Twitter handle is JDPosition, which stands for Weather Position, Position of Plain English. Yeah, I'm mostly focused on the intellectual, tactical side of football. Dope. So let's start here. What do you think the World Cup does to Spain as someone who lives in Madrid? Maybe paint the picture of what that looks like. Oh, it's a very big thing. It's a big source of pride. You hear, you hear slash see people with the flags, the Spanish flags and the banderolas, which is essentially our supporters cars over the, the city. You see them in bars. There'll be a lot of bars outside of city center as well that will be broadcasting, uh, the World Cup. So they'll be announcing we'll have this game on tonight. Uh, so it's definitely a big thing, if you will. It's, Often it was back then it used to take us a political meaning, uh, to the less so, but it's definitely something, a big part of society, if you will. You get the sense from the outside looking in that Spain is a quite tribal country with, you know, the Catalan region, Basque region, there in Madrid. Do you think football has the power to unite? I do think so. Um, there might be a question mark more or less for some Catalans. Uh, but generally the Basque, I do think they can get behind, uh, without much trouble. And even the Catalans, I think if you look at, especially this squad right now, where it has more potential Barca players than Real Madrid players, they can definitely get behind because they already did in 2012 when the majority of the players were Barca fans, uh, were Barca players. All right. So let's get into qualification. How would you say that that went? Let's say it was expected to be an easy group and there were expectations of Spain scoring fairly high, but there were doubts in the sense of when Enrique arrived, uh, he did set up his team like most expected him to with his bold choices of players people might not think are the most deserving. And I remember the media back then, that was a year ago more or less, completely lashed out. Uh, there were doubts with Enrique just before the Euros, uh, because Spain faced a lot of these goal scoring issues because they don't exactly have a world class number nine in their squad. So there's definitely a lot of controversy, uh, notably around Enrique as a former Barca, um, Barca, well, fun, he is definitely a former Barca coach on selecting Real Madrid players because, uh, as you might have noticed, lately Real Madrid has not had too many players in the squad, and that was definitely a big shock uh, for the media here in Madrid. Lucho Enrique, um, arguably the best manager in the tournament. You might say Louis van Gaal or Hansi Flick, but he's a manager you would think, I'd want him to manage my club. So what has he changed since 2018? And do you think he'll still be there after this World Cup? He's definitely changed them a lot in the sense of Spain needed direction because in 2018, the National Federation sacks the coach, the head coach, just before uh, the World Cup. If I'm not wrong, it was barely a week or so. And it barely gave time. So you already know the story. Spain got eliminated against Russia by the eighth of finals. Big thing for Spain. 
uh, coming off of a previous glorious decade. When Enedeke arrived, he made it clear that there's some players he absolutely likes. There's players that are good, but because it's Enedeke, he'll not select them. Uh, this is the case, and that's been very critiqued until today of Canales, Munyain, other players. But he's definitely shown a direction, a willingness uh, to play in the very known wide triangulation. We already had seen Barca from him. Uh, it's definitely a procession play, if you will, a mix of counter-attacks, pressing triggers, and numerical um, superiority. Uh, so if you will, it's you'd expect from him if he was in the club. As to whether he'll continue in Spain, that's the big question. I think it depends a lot on how Spain does. Because Spain are probably expected uh, to at least go to the quarters, uh, that's for sure. And then it depends, because I think he does have a few teams where he could be a very good candidate. I definitely think he has the ability to manage in in clubs. Whether he's up to the challenge, that's a bigger question mark. How would you say that they are trending or looking? Is it more positive, more negative? What would you say? They're definitely positive in the sense of they're showing they're showing a project, a plan, what are you going to call that? People know what to expect from Spain. They know which players are likely to be selected. They know which sort of strategy we can expect. That's for sure. The bigger question, and that's always been the question since the Euros, is who will be at the centre-back? This, since this season, who will be at left back? And of course, Spain still don't have a nine, not a proper one. And Gerard Bodeno uh, is missing out. There's an issue with Ansu Fati, who just started well, but as we know, these injuries just screwed him up this season and the last ones as well. And with the centre-backs, it's the same thing. Because in the Euros, uh, the trend line was Pique and Ramos were not selected. Essentially, New project, new faces. This season becomes harder because you have Eric Garcia and Pau Torres uh, and Laporte, who are all sort of part of the, the core, uh, that have shown their weaknesses and perhaps their sort of unreliability. So I definitely think the midfield and the right wing is more or less expected, uh, but the nine and the centre-back question is definitely a big one. Let's get into expectations then. So you've already set out that the expectations are, are quarterfinals. Are you going to hold yourself to that? I definitely do think that we'll go to the quarterfinals. I definitely believe a majority of the fans, Spanish fans in Spain or on general fans, tend to underrate Spain simply because they're in regular in front of the goal. They showed in the Euros that because they have such an excellent group cohesion and they tend to dominate matches, which is, to my sense, important in terms of confidence, they can definitely not be a favorite, but they're what I call second-tier teams in the sense of they're very good. They're lacking a few to be favorites, but they can definitely upset the favorites. What was my next question? Ah, David De Gea, his exclusion. Controversial or not really? To me, not. Because if you look at the Nereke, it's clear that he wants someone that is good with the ball, that is comfortable, because he will be asked to play with the ball and eventually push up. Now, knowing David De Gea, that's specifically not the profile you want. One, because his cross-claiming is not the best, and more importantly, because with Manchester United, he's proven to be error-prone with the ball. And that's the least thing that Enrique wants. Now, whether really Unai Simon, who used to be the number one, since De Gea was kicked out more or less, 
is the best? That's a other question because he did have his moments in the Euros where people were like, is the, they had that bad that you have to take an Simo? I generally think more than a question of how good they are, that was just a statement of Enrique when he came. He had to, he wanted to kick a few, which was the case of Ramos and Pique, to say, this is the new team. To my sense, it's not that controversial because knowing Enrique, he looks after profiles, he has his favorites, and David Deja was definitely not among them. All right. Give me one or two players you're curious to see at this World Cup. If he's fit, I'm definitely looking towards Dani Olmo because he's definitely, even during the Euros, I was part of the people that thought he was the most important. He hasn't exactly had a brilliant season lately because of injuries, but if he's fit, I definitely think he can replicate the influence he had in the advanced midfield slash inverted wings, to not even first nine in some cases. Uh, I definitely think there's him. There is definitely Pedri, who I think everyone is excited, especially in the country, because his rise is just phenomenal. And in the Euros, he already showed what he can do. Um, so that's definitely another name. And then the big question is it depends on who else is fielded, uh, because I'm not that sure that Thiago will be selected. All right, Kai. We've talked about maybe some of the issues that the squad has from center backs, goalkeepers, strikers. My fun question is... If you could bring back one Spanish legend to fill a gap in the squad, who would you pick and why? Because there are a lot of players that you could pick from. Maybe you wouldn't want to waste a spot on a midfielder, but there's some good options, Xavi, Iniesta, etc. Who are you picking and why? David Villa. Ooh, I like it. David Villa was, if I remember well, the third player that caught my attention when I grew up. And since then, he's always been my hero, if you will, the... For me, he was a perfect profile, uh, whether Barca was Spain. And I was hesitating uh, between saying, for example, Ramos Prime uh, or Piquet Prime or Puyol at the defense. But I feel the nine problem is way bigger than the defense. Because if you have a nine like David Villa, or I was thinking also about Torres, but, but I find one with Villa. <laughs> that was the debate. Uh, but uh, with Villa... If you look at his prime, especially during the prime years of Spain, he was just insane. To me, if you look at, as you said, there's the midfield. And of course, Xavi, yes, it would be great. But I trust this midfield to create chances. And if you have somebody like Villa, he's just going to score all of them. So therefore, the defense problems of, say, the both center backs and goalkeeper are negligible because David Villa would probably, in this sort of setup, be able to score three, four, four goals at least in the first two games. I like your answer, Kai. So, who do you Thank think you. wins the World Cup? That's a hard one. <laughs> no, in the sense of it's hard between reasoning and just gut feeling. Because the reasoning part would say it's Argentina-Brazil for sure. My problem is my gut feeling tells me this would be too romantic. It would be too easy. It just doesn't feel right they would win. Um, and therefore... I feel there is a chance of either Germany, France, or England as well. Who would you pick if you had to pick one of the three? I'll say Germany. All right. Last question. Is there anything I haven't asked about Spain that you think people should know or might want to know or that you just find interesting? I sort of touched upon it, but the midfield question with Thiago is such an odd one. And especially, it's insane. I don't think people realize, uh, because you mentioned that Spain has a good midfield, I think it's insane the fact that we can look at this midfield and we can say there should be so many more names. 
that's genuinely something that's been on my mind since the Euros, because in every selection of Enrique, Spanish fans have always critiqued the same thing. Enrique, why do you choose these guys and not the other ones? Uh, I remember when Gavi was first selected, he was still 18. People were going crazy and saying he doesn't deserve it. To me, I think that's what most people miss about Enrique. Because most people expect, and that's a reasonable thought, if you will, that it's a meritocracy. That means if you're playing well in club and the few chances you've had in selection you've performed, you're going to be selected. And Enrique has proven this, and he's clashed with journalists about this, that he just doesn't give a shit. Quite literally. <laughs> he, he doesn't care. And he's had journalists come at him, and he'll gladly take them. I remember when Laporte, a few years ago, he switched from the, to the Spanish national team. There was a Madka uh, journalist, and the Madka journalist asked him, do you feel he's really Spanish? Because he's technically French. Laporte, that's a French name. And that's, I remember, when Enrique essentially told him, just go, go, uh, goodbye. There's another instance, for example, where a certain journalist who was called, uh, Hugo Malo, he asked like a question that essentially pissed Enrique off and he told him, tu eres malo, which translates because his last name was Malo to you're bad. That's, I feel, the legacy of Enrique. That means I will take a limited core of players that will not in any way provoke unity in the country because you were speaking about, um, if I felt Spain can unite. And one of the arguments as to why they won't be completely united is because the entire country, no matter from which side you are, where you're Madrid, Barca, they will critique the hell out of Enrique for not choosing their players. I think what's important in the selection is that, ironically enough, Enrique rarely chooses guys outside of the top two, top three. Uh, I've mentioned Canales. Canales is a midfielder that's been brilliant as a media punta for the last five years at least. He's never been said Muniain. Uh, he's literally the core of Athletic Club, who right now are doing well with Enosuevede, has never been chosen, if I remember well. And I mentioned Thiago. Thiago is an odd one because in the Euros, he did not have a sort of primary role. And now when Pedri sort of cemented his place, because he's almost certain to play along Busquets or uh, the question is whether Thiago really plays. And it's unthinkable because if you look at his latest Liverpool performances, the guy's simply insane. Uh, so I feel like this, the actual selection, because recently we had a leak, of what the actual players will be, will provoke a sort of unprecedented national fight between fans. <laughs> oh, man. Damn. Okay. We will be on the lookout, Kai. So where can people follow you on Twitter again? JV Position. Link will be in the description. Kai, I thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you for having me. Japan are, I don't know, they feel like an underrated team in every World Cup. It's like you you look at the players that they have and you think those are some really good players, but their national team doesn't seem rated on some Mm -hmm. high level or anything. Um, What do you guys make of Japan? Watch out for them. I watched that Belgian game with my Japanese friend. Shout out to Taichi, man, if you're listening, man. You go. And it was so dep- it was so depressing seeing him and his wife <laughs> see <laughs> Belgian combat to... from Tunnel Up. Oh no, no, it was like he, he was basically he was, he was just in distress, man. And they were really good. They were close to knocking out Belgium, a team mm-hmm. who 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 became the the, the third best team. So now you have that core who can build upon that, and he puts in a Kubo who has four years of experience, bringing a Mitomo who came from the J-League to Brighton. And from the five minutes I saw, saw of him, even against Chelsea, I'm like, oh, this guy looks good. We'll get to Germany. Japan have a very good chance of making it through this group. I think Japan have a good chance of making it through this group because I think Spain is going to be tough. 
Japan, I think that they they can feel confidence in beating Germany and Costa Rica. So I'm not sure they can make the quarters, but I think that they can make it to the group. Because I just think they did so well in 2018, although fair play tax over Senegal, but it is what it is. I, I, I They should feel confident, man. They should feel confident. This is an interview I did with Dan Orlowitz. And yeah, hopefully you guys enjoy it. My name is Dan Orlowitz. I'm a sports writer at the Japan Times. Uh, football is my main thing, but I do a bit of everything. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at iStateUtokyo. Uh, go read my articles. Uh, I show up on podcasts from time to time. Go listen to those. And I think that's all I have to plug. The national team is at sort of a weird point in terms of its popularity. Uh, GQ, uh, they should say the Japanese edition of GQ, just did its uh, football special. And the letter from the editor basically said, well, the national team bubble is over, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's no longer popular. It's just we are in a different phase from where we were 24 years ago when Japan made its first World Cup in France in 1998 and hosted, co-hosted in, in 2002. When Japan got its first win against Russia in 2002, I believe it recorded 66% viewership on TV, 66% of the country. And things have changed now to the point where the main broadcaster for the World Cup qualifiers is DAZN. The away games are no longer broadcast on TV. You have to go to a streaming service. Uh, you cannot go to a J-League game and see national team stars. You have to watch them play in Europe. Basically, almost the entire squad is in Europe, and probably in 2026, the entire squad will be in Europe. There is a bit of a disconnect, and of course, COVID and stuff hasn't really helped. This is the first generation that is post Shinji Kagawa, post Keisuke Honda, who carried the team for nearly a decade. So we're in a weird point, but once the tournament starts, you know, fans will come around. But it's, it's changed. It's not quite what it used to be. Japan has reached the World Cup seven straight times. They've reached the round of 16 three times. Uh, that's That doesn't impress anyone anymore. We want to get to the quarterfinals. We want to get beyond. Because this is a team with players who are capable of doing so, I think that's what fans are waiting for. Walk me through the steps of Japan's qualification campaign, which, from my research, was quite successful. Asia does tend for, for the, the bigger countries to be a bit of a cakewalk. Our first group was Group F, uh, featuring Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Mongolia, and Myanmar. And <laughs> Japan uh, barely got through that group with eight wins from eight games, 46 goals for, and two goals against. Did you say 46? I did say 46. So a goal difference of 44? Yes. Ah! These are the kind of results that made a lot of players look good stat-wise, but maybe not so representative of, of their actual ability. And then, so, so they, they got through the second round, uh, and then was the, the final round of qualifying along with uh, Saudi Arabia, Australia, Oman, China, and Vietnam. Tricky. Uh, made even more so by the fact that they lost the opener, very narrowly got past China in the second game, and then... A loss to Saudi Arabia. So when you're starting with one win and two losses, I mean, there there were concerns. I hope that capital C is being enunciated correctly. And then things turned around and they basically won out except for a dead rubber draw against Vietnam and you know, got through the group and finished second behind Saudi Arabia. How about the in-between time? 
So from when it was known that Japan have qualified for Qatar and now, what is the trajectory, would you say? In June, there were four uh, friendlies against Paraguay, which they won pretty handily, 4-1 uh, against Brazil, which was sort of the big marquee game, which they lost uh, 1-0, but that was a very late Neymar penalty and questionable. But they played very good defense for most of that game. And it was actually a very impressive result. Uh, at the national, it was at the national stadium, and it was sold out, and it was, it felt like a Japan game. Uh, and then you had the Kirin Cup uh, the following week, where they beat Ghana and lost zero uh, three to Tunisia, which was concerning. In September, which was our most recent match week, and we beat the U.S. I say we; it's weird for me, an American, to say we beat the U.S., but like that—that's sort of where we're at. Uh, and that was a thoroughly dominant 2-0 win and then a scoreless draw against Ecuador in which they played very well defensively but there just wasn't enough on the front end of things and that left a lot of us frustrated your manager Moriyasu I think is the pronunciation yep, yep. formation style of play if you could give me a quick paragraph on that generally 4-2-3-1 uh, he, he's toyed around with 4-3-3 but we're not really seeing the fruits of that He's frustrating because he doesn't like to really get into what he talks about tactics-wise. He likes to, I, I think, style himself as more of an emotional manager. Um, you sort of see that in his pressers where he likes to spend half the time thanking the uh, medical staff and the emergency workers and everyone who you know, made it possible for them to play during the pandemic and that sort of thing. In terms of how they play, you do see a lot of sort of fancy pass work. You'll see uh, a lot of movement uh, up the sides. I think Japan tends to pride itself at having uh, very speedy fullbacks. If you look at the playmakers capable of magic, creating stuff sort of at the edge of the penalty area and maybe a bit further in, the, the, the one problem that we've had we sort of don't know what to do with the striker position. That's the tactical gap we're facing. I need one player to watch. Games against Spain, Germany. This player is primed to have a good 2022. I think the answer sort of has to be Junior Ito, playing in France this season after a few a few years in, in Belgium. He's 29, which is maybe a bit old. You get the sense that if he had gone pro after he turned 18 instead of going to university, he might have stepped up a lot earlier maybe be playing for a more marquee club but on that right wing he is bold uh is really great control of the ball uh he's great at pressuring uh the opponents and forcing a turnover just really accurate crosses and i mean he can he's one of the few japanese players who can if you give him the ball and put him near the, the area uh he will create a shot out of nowhere and that's not something that, unfortunately, you can say all the time about some of our players. But if you're looking for someone who can just turn on a dime and take the shot, uh, it's going to have to be Junior Ito. And I think that he's going to be really key. Okay. So as you mentioned earlier, this is Japan's seventh consecutive World Cup. But if you look at the record, there seems to be a sort of yo-yo effect where group stage, run of 16, group stage, run of 16, group stage, run of 16. And this would be the group stage exit if the pattern is consistent in that way. And then there's a group with two of Europe's best over the past, you name the decades. What is the expectation heading into a group that has Germany and Spain? It, it is between the rock of a group of death 
and the hard place of a group of death. And <laughs> by that, I mean, if they go out of the group stage, I think that there will be a threat of being able to say, oh, well, you're against two former World Cup champions. Of course, it was always going to be difficult. It's true, but it is also a bit of a cop-out and it would be selling this team a little short. Yes, you're right in that it is a bit of a yo-yo team. It also does tend to perform at its best when expectations are really low. I get the idea that the Japanese Football Association is quite particular and meticulous in that way. And I'm curious what you think. We, we have two games to really test ourselves against European heavyweights. What do you think they hope to learn from those games? It's a great point. Again, when I talk about low expectations and, and sort of the rock and the hard plays, this is the group we've been waiting for. I mean, Germany and Japan have such tight associations going back to you know the 50s and 60s when we sent our players over there for training camps and they sent coaches here to help develop the national team program. This is very much taking on big, big, you know, the big brother. Uh, and in Spain, of course, there's a tight relationship. Players like Andres Iniesta coming to Japan. We've had a number of Spanish players here, a number of Spanish coaches here. You know, Barcelona tiki-taka style is what a lot of players aspire to play, you know, and, and Real Madrid and Barcelona are two of the most popular clubs in Japan. So this will be a test and how well we do or don't do against these two teams. That is the midterm that this is where we get to look and say, well, we've been going to world cups for 24, 25 years now. This is where we're at. Uh, and the JFA actually released uh, its working paper on what it calls Japan's way uh, and that's just this massive document on what sort of football it wants Japan to play for you know, at the national team level, how it wants to develop these players at every position. And it, it's fascinating. Uh, but we're going to see what are allegedly Japan's best and brightest against hopefully Germany and Spain's best and brightest. And we're going to get to see how good our guys are. Who do you think is going to win the World Cup? Oof. Uh, maybe this is Brazil's year as much as I would sort of hate to say it. You know, it's not going to be England. Like, let's get that out of the way. Uh, you know, it's it's going to be someone we expect. Like, I think it's going to be one of the original sort of pot one teams. This thing about Japanese fans cleaning the stadium after games. Yeah. What cultural basis does that behavior stem from, if you have any idea? I, I think it's just the cultural basis of not being a dickhead. Like... <laughs> I mean, look, there are, uh, I'm sure, I actually don't really know the origins of that. I can sort of imagine uh, those those fans going to France for, for the first time. It's like, well, guys, like we have to, you know, we're, we're guests. It's an honor to be here and we have to treat this, uh, you know, treat the stadium with respect. Is there anything I haven't asked that you think people should know or might want to know about the Japanese national team? I mean, we haven't talked about how they have the best uniforms at the World Cup. Let's go there. Take like, it away, bro. Those origami kits? I mean, look, Japan may not win the World Cup, but Adidas has won the World Cup. And and <laughs> on standing on Japan's shoulders, uh, Adidas has won the World Cup. No, it's an amazing kit. And I think that's that would be the tragedy if fans only get to see that kit for three games, especially after the last two years of that camo uh, uniform, which just let me down. Uh, and if you are listening to this podcast and you like the camo kit, know that you are wrong. <laughs> I just want to put that out there. And and you are wrong. And I, I hope that one day you will accept that. But no, it's it's a banger. It's uh, great. And 
this is a weird World Cup, isn't it? This will have an outsized effect on the future of soccer, football, whatever fandom in Japan, because we have taken a, a, a heavy blow from COVID these last couple of years. And it, it has really been tough on the clubs, the leagues, everyone from the grassroots on down, just because, you know, can't sell tickets and fans aren't quite ready to go to big stadiums quite yet. We're, we're starting to get there, but to do well at this World Cup would mean a lot to the community as a whole. And I think that's what we're really hoping for. Dan, where can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, at Aishetu Tokyo um, is where I post my bullshit. Uh, you can find my articles on uh, the Japan Times, I guess, at Japan Times if you want all of our news, at JT underscore sports if you want our sports news. Only uh, outlet in the world where you can get your J-League news, your NPB news, and your Sumo news in one place. Cool. Dan's links will be in the description. Bro, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Thank you. No problem. Isn't this the country of Paolo Wanchop? I have no idea. Okay, okay. What do you guys know about Costa Rica? No, no, no. Keep moving. All right. So this is the one country in 2018 I didn't talk to anybody with. And I was quite mad about that one that I got 31 of 32. But we found somebody. So the story was quite layered and how it happened. Shout out to Jesse Lose for hooking me up. And yeah, I got to talk with Hugo Solano. So let's just jump right into that. I am uh, Hugo Solano from uh, Costa Rica. I'm pretty passionate about football. I'm a former soccer player uh, in the second league of Costa Rica. I live to watch uh, soccer every weekend. Football in Costa Rica uh, is the, more, uh, the most popular sport. Soccer here is almost a, a religion. Some people say that it became so popular because you can play it everywhere. You see kids here playing on, at the beach, on the street. Uh, with one ball, you can have 20, 22 people playing. Every single little town has a soccer field. You see people walking to the field pretty much every afternoon. Kids playing in school break and lunchtime. So we love soccer. CONCACAF is notoriously difficult for particular countries, but it seems not so much for Costa Rica these days. Um, share with me how qualification went. Costa Rica uh, was the last team who qualified to the World Cup, you know. We had a particular qualification. During the first seven games, we only had like six points out of 21. And then the miracle happened. In the last seven games, we won 19 points out of 21. We made it to the intercontinental playoff against uh, New Zealand. And we beat New Zealand um, uh, 1-0. Joel Campbell scored for us. We were not happy the way that the team was playing. You know, we were winning our games 1-0, 1-2. Without showing much, we were like winning the points. That is what really matters. Actually, we only played one game actually against the United States. We really liked the way the team played. And we beat the U.S. in San Jose 2-0. You know, playing the U.S. is always a great motivation for us. How was, I don't know, maybe the stress of a playoff in that way? Was the country feeling uneasy? Was there confidence? How was that? Um, we didn't know much about New Zealand, so we didn't know what to expect. The fact that we are in like a transition right now, I think uh, Costa Rica didn't renew the team on time after Brazil 2014, that was great. So we didn't really know what, what to expect. We just 
play the game. I mean, of course, we were like supporting the team, but with not very high expectations, you know. For a small country like Costa Rica, just qualifying to the World Cup is a is a nice achievement. You know what I mean? Yeah. Did you ever think that there would be a time that Costa Rica would be this commonplace at World Cups? Five of the last six. I mean, we want to always be in the World Cup, but lately, first time we went to the World Cup was 1990. Okay, that was the first time ever. But it seems like lately it's a more common thing for us mm. to be in the World Cup. I think, yes. I think we are the, the best team in uh, Central America. Our biggest rivals are U.S. and uh, Mexico all the time. Yeah, Canada is pretty good right now. But yeah, at this point, it's not easy because it's a pretty tough uh, qualification run. But uh, yes, I think uh, Costa Rica, every four years, got a big chance to be in the World Cup. Your parents' generation, maybe. Like, maybe those would be the ones that would be shocked of like, yeah. I can't believe Costa Rica yeah. are this good. Yeah. Yeah, because that that would seem crazy. But Costa Rica are in a group with Germany and Spain. So, what would you say are the expectations? Like, just don't embarrass yourself, or is there still like <laughs> we can get out of this group and do something? Because we've seen Costa Rica okay. do it before. I might sound uh, pessimistic, uh, Daniel. Oh. I think I'm more uh, realistic of what Costa Rica will be facing in the World Cup. Germany, Spain, and Japan uh, have a great level. It's going to be very tough. Imagine that we have some of the same players from Brazil. 2014, but we don't have the same level. Eight years have passed, you know, and there's no, I don't think we have pressure to get to the round of 16. In my opinion, Germany and Spain got the pressure. I really like how the way Japan play. I love their dynamic, their discipline and the way they play. Again, the Costa Rican team is on, uh, is on transition right now. Just the fact that we that we are in the World Cup is a, is a big accomplishment for a small country like Costa Rica. Who is the manager of this team? And what would you say is Costa Rica's style of play? Our manager is um, Luis Fernando Suarez. He's from Colombia. Uh, this is his third time in the World Cup. He took Ecuador to Germany in 2006. And he took Honduras um, to the last uh, World Cup in Russia. The way he plays, I think is very conservative. He normally plays 4-5-1. A very solid defense, a great goalkeeper like Keylor Navas. I'm pretty sure he knows our limitations. He's trying to renew the team little by little, bring new players, younger guys, you know, because uh, Ruiz, uh, Celso Borges, those guys are almost done with the national team. And I'm pretty sure the Costa Rican Federation is pretty happy with his work because they just uh, renew him the, the contract until... 2026 for four more years. Yeah, so let's talk about those old guys. So the Brian Ruizes, the Kaylor Navises, the Joe Campbells, the Celso Borjas. I always get confused with that one. Um, Borges. Borges, thank you. Yes, thank you. Celso Borges. His dad is originally from uh, Brazil. Ah, huh? okay. Yeah, so, so those old guys. Last time, definitely for Navas and Ruiz. I don't think they'll make America um, in, in 2026, but... I guess I would ask, what is it going to be like seeing them on this stage for the last time? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be really cool. You know, Celso Borges and Brian Ruiz, they're both veterans of the squad of 2014. They always have been uh, key players in the national team. Very smart players. 
but there's always a but they're not the same from eight, 10 years ago. You know, mm. Qatar will be the, the end of their careers, you know. Joel Campbell, he's still in pretty good shape. He, he's playing in a very high level in, uh, for Leon in Mexico. He's a very, very talented player. He's always there when we need him. Campbell is one of these players that always have a, have a very special relationship with the national team. You know, he scores, he assists. By far, right now, he's our best player. Kaylor Navas, which is 35 right now, he's always our hero. You mm -hmm. know, in my opinion, one of the top 10 keepers in the world, including winning three Champions League with Real Madrid. Best player ever for Costa Rica. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. They are like guiding some uh, newer players that we are bringing into the national team, especially one. I don't know if you ever hear about Jawison Bennett. He's only 18. He just got signed up for uh, Sunderland and the second division, uh, the British second division. We have very high expectations on him. He's one of the players to watch. Uh, he's only 18. He's, uh, we think he's going to be the, the new, our new golden boy. I was going to ask, who do you think we should watch? But now we have a yeah, name. Yeah, keep an eye on Jawison Bennett. He's a left winger. He's really, really good. We got high expectations on him. He's pretty young. He doesn't speak any English, and he's in <laughs> he's in a playing for Sunderland. You know, <laughs> when <laughs> I was reading the other day, when when the coach tells him what to do, he just smiles and, and say yes. <laughs> <laughs> But look, hey, games against Germany, Spain, Japan, people are going to be watching those games. So if he shows up, he who knows? He might not be playing for Sunderland for long. He could go up. So yeah, um, I think uh, I think that's that's part of the plan. You know, the 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 World Cup is a is a huge window. Mm. So Hugo, who do you think is going to win the World Cup? I got three <laughs> three teams. Okay, let's go, let's go. Who you got? All right, all right. Uh, not that Brazil is always a candidate. Uh, France. We had a great generation, and I like Argentina. I think uh, Leo Messi got a really nice generation of players around him this time. In my opinion, one of those three will win the World Cup. Cool. Um, last question. Is there anything I haven't asked that you think people should know or might find fun or a fun fact about Costa Rica and the national team? We know our team as La Cele. La Cele is the team of the Ticos. We are Costa Ricans, known as the Ticos. Uh, every time our Costa Rican uh, team play, nobody works. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, the the whole country stops. I mean, the president gives people extra time so they can watch <laughs> the game. No kidding. Yeah, like in the public, uh, the public employees and stuff, like sometimes they normally get an hour break for lunch. If uh, there's a game of the national team, they will... Like, for example, for New Zealand, the, the, the game was around lunchtime. The president told everybody, I mean, if they go to extra time and penalties, yeah, make sure you take another hour. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's cool. All right, Hugo, is there a place where people can follow you online or? Um, no, just my personal social media, Hugo Solano Solis. That's uh, Instagram or Facebook. Cool. I will put the link in the description. Hugo, thank sure. you for taking the time. You have no idea how much I appreciate this. No problem. Thank you very much. I can't wait to, to listen to the podcast. Let's talk about Germany now. Uh, another team I'm really high on. This sounds like a bit of a weird statement to say, 
But Timo Werner's injury knocks off a notch. But uh, yeah, I think this is another team that can reach the final. Um, I'm very high on Hansi Flick. I think Hansi Flick is another another one of the better international football managers. You'll notice I keep saying this about managers that came over from the top of club football into international management. Uh, yeah, I think the German team plays really well. I think Jamal Musiala is another player who's going to have a breakout tournament as well. So if it all lines up, Germ- you know Germany are going to do what Germany often do at World Cups, which is just march their way to semi-finals and finals. Carl said losing Timo Werner is a bad thing. Do you agree with that? Yes or no? Why Obviously, no? No, because he's, 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 he's garbage. The guy's a spy. So... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh. I'm shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't so... laugh. No, because Carl, 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 when you said losing Timo Werner knocks an inch or whatever you said. I'm like, does it really? No, no, no. But, but, but see, here's my Werner's had, a, Werner's had a good season so far. No, 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 no. no. So, so, so no, let me explain. So, so no, we, no, it's obvious. His garbage is crap. He's a spy. The yes, a though, spy. is... He's a spy. He's a spy. For whom? Um, for whom? He was, when he played for Chelsea, he was a spy for the opposition. So whoever we were playing, <laughs> he was basically playing for, for them. Could be so, Brighton, could be West Ham. Right, could any, be... Anyone. Pick, so take your pick. He was playing against you? Yes. 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 Okay. <laughs> this, was, right. this was proven by our agents. Um, he is still useful. Mm-hmm. Sort of like when I had Benzema as a scholar in the Brick Academy. He doesn't have to score goals, but he could just disrupt things. And he's a disruptor. His speed... Is something just his speed and movement is something I have to be aware of, which now gives someone like a Havertz, a Mola, a Musiala, a Genabri, a Sane space to now sort of now come in undercover and now come into those attacking spaces because you're not tracking the runs of Werner that's taking defenders away. So that kind of disrupting influence of his speed and just his presence being there, I think takes away from how Havertz, Musiala can now get into key positions, man. But with him gone though. It means that there's not a lot more on Mosiello, who I think that guy is, he could be one of the stars of the... That guy pop. is cash money. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so. I, I, I sat down with Raphael Honigstein of The Athletic, Carl, one of your boys over there. And uh, he was gracious enough to give me some of his time. So this is our conversation that we had about Germany. My name is Raphael Honigstein. I work for The Athletic and a few other outlets and broadcasters. So I've been starting more with cultural questions than football questions in that way. And I've been asking people, <laughs> what does football mean to your country? How how big is the World Cup? I feel like for major nations like Germany, those questions are kind of silly. We get it. However, the last time I did this, I was surprised at the idea that people in Germany, or at least the person I interviewed, and it stuck with me, was somewhat over the national team and was more happy to focus on their Bundesliga club or clubs outside. I was wondering if there are kind of cycles of national interest in the national team in Germany. And if there are, what would you say is the temperature ahead of this World Cup? I think the temperature is a little bit colder than it otherwise would be because of the timing and the location of the World Cup. I think people don't like the fact that it's in Qatar. They don't like the fact that it's in winter. And there's almost a sense of sort of feeling a little bit guilty about watching it and trying not to enjoy it too much as a result. Now, having said that, I think there is a much warmer attitude towards the national team since Hansi Flick has taken over. I think people are willing to give this team a chance to see what they can do. By and large, the results have been very good. The football has been pretty good. So I think everyone's quite ready to be maybe 
enthused in a way that they perhaps don't expect. I'm a bit wary always about people saying, oh, you know, the national team is not great or whatever. Yes, you get these people, but then still everyone tunes in and watches and everyone gets very upset when they lose and everyone is pretty happy when they win. So I don't think actually this idea that, you know, people were kind of not really interested in the national team anymore was ever true. I think in the wake of 2018, there was a, a sense of Leuve's reign having become stale. And that reflected, I think, onto the wider feeling about the team. But in a more abstract sense, you know, the national team, I think, will always be at the heart of many people's footballing emotions, simply because of the importance and uh, the kind of national importance that the results carry. So I think that it's probably going to be okay, not super enthusiastic, not millions of people partying in the streets. It's going to be too cold for that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think a decent World Cup will also bring a, a decent size of of people being maybe more secretly than usual, sort of quite happy with this national team. Mm. Let's get into qualification. So if, if if you'll allow me the end question here. So I'm going to run through some numbers. 27 out of 30 points, plus 32 goal difference. You beat North Macedonia 4-0, Armenia 6-0, Liechtenstein 9-0. As someone who watches this from a journalistic perspective, but probably also has some sort of attachment to the national team as well, do you ever consider qualification, especially against countries like that? Is it bullying? No. No, I don't. <laughs> way. Uh, I, never, I never thought about it that way. You know, no, North Macedonia beat Germany, which was one of the lowest points of the, the Löw reign in the qualifiers before he um, he stepped down. So, no, you, you'd expect you'd expect Germany to, to play well and playing well is often reflected in, in the results. So, no. As you said, Flick has come in. There was 15 years of Joachim Lowe. What would you say are the major differences or takeaways that you've noticed in their style of play, if any? I think um, I think Flick's system is a lot more vertical, a lot more aggressive than Löw. Löw, in his later years, had become obsessed with this weird three-at-the-back system, which really managed to diminish the team rather than enhance it, putting lots of people in positions where they didn't want to be. First and foremost, of course, Joshua Kimmich has a right wing back, which was uh, a real waste of time. And I think Flick is keeping it fairly simple. This is this is really a Bayern team plus a few extras. And uh, maybe that's a little bit unfair on, on superstar players like uh, like Ilka Gundogan, who I think will play a great World Cup. But there is going to be a strong Bayern presence and therefore a strong Bayern dynamic in the way they play. It's going to be interesting to see how that translates into playing very defensive, very deep sides like I expect Japan to be, where you know breaking them down might be might be tricky. We saw that in the last Germany games in March that they struggle a little bit to find that rhythm, to find that space. But if the game opens up a little bit, if Germany score first, which I think is going to be key, then I think they can be very effective and uh, one of the more entertaining and competent teams to see at the World Cup. So we have the the impressive nature of qualification, and then we have the Nations League performances, which it wasn't shocking, horrific, but it wasn't great. So I'm wondering how you would project, are, are, are Germany trending in the right direction heading into the tournament, or is there a little bit of question marks there? No, I don't think any question marks. I think people are fairly confident about this Germany team. There are one or two questions about the formation as far as, or I should say the personnel, 
as far as the fullback positions are concerned, where Germany have been traditionally a little bit weak in recent years. So, no, I think Germany will go into this fairly confident. My one worry is that in recent years, especially when they had good tournaments, a lot of it was down to that preparation work that they did. I think that Germany's preparation over the last, let's say, 15, 16 years has been better, more thorough, more precise, more structured than many other nations, which still, to some degree, think that just having 11 decent players is going to make for a good team because they're all great, because they're all internationals. And that advantage, if you will, or that foreignness uh, will not be there with there only being a week between the end of the club games and the World Cup starting. So that's my one concern that they don't won't have quite the same cohesion that we've come to expect from them. So, but no, I think Germany go into this ready to give a much better account of themselves than they did in 2018 for sure. And also in 2021. I like that you went there because my next question was expectations. I feel expectations for Germany are always high. Do you think this particular team, how it's built, how it's managed, how it's been structured is capable of winning this World Cup? And kind of attached to that, what is success in your mind? Is it final, semifinal, quarterfinal? Like, How would you personally define success? I've noticed over the years that when it comes to your own national team, the flaws are magnified and you tend to underestimate the strengths because you're used to them. And then you look around and you see everyone else, including the very best teams, have their own problems and they're all deficient in one way or another. That's sort of the story of international teams in 2022 and before. I'm not sure they're quite good enough to win it, but I think they have an outside chance. I think they should be in the mix. I can see them in the last eight with a bit of luck in the last four, and then it's anyone's cup to win. But I don't think there is this expectation that they have to win it. Um, The one thing going for Flick is that he's taken over the national team after a couple of really poor tournaments. And in a way, the only way is up. Of course, you could have another disaster and get knocked out in the group stage or the last 16 against the kind of opposition that you're expected to beat. But I think that's unlikely. I think Germany will qualify and will probably make it to the quarters. And then we'll see what the draw brings and what kind of form they're in. But that already will be an improvement on what we've seen before. So I think Flick is actually in a pretty comfortable position here because all he needs to do is to show that there's progression of some sort that this team is is getting better, is growing, has an idea of what they're trying to do. And then 2024 and 2026, I think it's when the pressure will come in, just as it did for Löw after he'd had a couple of near misses before. Okay, so these are these are the surprise questions that I don't know I'm going to ask, but I, th- I think you'll be able to handle this one. Given the 2018 World Cup and the disappointment that that was, is Flick the only major structural change that's happened in the setup? Or have there been other maneuvers that Germany have gone through to position themselves better for this and the tournaments that you mentioned upcoming? Basically, is Flick the only major change on a structural level? Or have there been other changes that are worth noting? No, Flick has been the biggest change. A lot of the other people that were there under Löw are still around. Beof is still there. Some of the staff members and the wider staff are still there. Of course, Flick has brought his own coaching team, among them Danny Royal, who's a really up-and-coming coach who was at Southampton under Hasenhüttl. And it was at Bayern under Flick and is credited with um, with a lot of tactical input uh, and a bit of the, the mastermind behind Flick. So I think that um, the combination of Flick as being a very personable guy, great man manager, players really love him, 
and uh, theoretical input from Bruel should put them simply in a stronger place, in a better place than they were under Löw, because Löw's backroom staff wasn't as strong, and he himself, I think, had lost his way, as I said before. So I think that will make for a better setup, but I wouldn't call it a revolution or a real change because a lot of the players are still the same. Yes, the system is changing, but really it's changing back to how it was before Löw got went a little bit off the the rails uh, with his tactical ideas. I think the team will be pretty comfortable. All right. So I've been saying, <laughs> I've been asking, who's a player to watch? Like if you're Saudi Arabia, we don't really know these players like that. So who's one player to watch? With the Germany squad, we basically know all the players. So for you, it's a different question. Who has to play well for Germany to play well? I think the most important player is probably Joshua Kimmich. But he might not be the right answer for the question because he usually plays well anyway. Um, <laughs> That's very true. Very, very rarely has an off night. Very rarely doesn't dominate and plays badly. Uh, I'd like to say Ilka Gundogan because I think he gives Germany an extra dimension in terms of passing. But it's not sure whether Flick will go with him. He might go with Kimmich and Gretzka. Um, if he goes with a midfield three, then I think we might see the three of them, which would be pretty amazing but then leave some question marks about Müller's position, et cetera, further up the field. So I think Kimmich is the one player Germany can't do without. If, God forbid, he might be injured or suspended, I think there might be in real trouble. If he plays his usual stuff, then I think they have every chance of, of doing well. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about Jamal Musiala and your opinion or thoughts about what he can do. Musiala is the player that I have the biggest hopes for for this Germany team. I think he can be a revelation. Of course, if you are a fan of Bayern, if you're a fan of uh, the Champions League and the Bundesliga, then you know who he is. But if you're just more of a casual guy, just tunes in every couple of uh, couple of years, I think he is ready to surprise a lot of people. And he could be a real breakout star for this Germany team. I think especially in the group stage where Germany will come up against opponents that will have very little interest opening up and really playing a bit of football themselves. Somebody like Musiala who can beat his man, who can find a pass, is going to be absolutely instrumental. And I wouldn't be surprised if he starts at least two out of those three games in the group stage. I think he'll be he'll be a real star for this Germany team. Who do you think wins the World Cup, Raf? Or who are your three favorites? Well, France are number one. The talent is just ridiculous in terms of both quality and quantity. They can field three teams, no problem. Of course, that poses its own problems and Deschamps hasn't always made the right decisions in the past I think there is a chance that it can all blow up but nine times out of ten this team should win the World Cup again in my view I don't think anyone comes close if for whatever reason they they don't do it then I think Brazil have a decent shot I think Spain have a decent shot and then there's this sort of tier of nations where I would include England Germany Belgium maybe the Netherlands. They're all sort of flawed in one way or the other, but they can all, like Croatia four years ago, uh, with a bit of luck and with a bit of resilience, go quite deep in, in the competition. So I think it'd be quite open behind France. <laughs> Fair enough. I have two questions left, and one of them is a very selfish one. And the question that I have written down, or at least it's in my head, what is Kai Havertz? Meaning... To me, he's a quite confusing player, and I'm curious how he's seen in Germany, or just in your view, skill-wise, position-wise, talent-wise, like what is Kai Havertz? Kai Havertz is 
a hugely talented player whose versatility sometimes works against him because he solves a lot of problems for you. And I think his, his development at Chelsea has stalled a little bit because of the way that Chelsea have played, which I think doesn't really play to his strengths. I could envisage him playing in a possession side that has a lot of the ball, that has quite a slow build-up and then looks for something to happen in the final third. A little bit like it happened at Leverkusen when he was there, I think he'd be he'd be superb. I think that him leading the line in the Premier League for Chelsea is a very different prospect than doing it at Leverkusen where you're surrounded by players and have spaces. I think he's not as effective in the Premier League, um, especially not in this Chelsea team. So I don't know. My feeling has always been that Chelsea wasn't perhaps the most natural of environments for him. I think he might have done a little bit better playing for Real Madrid or for Bayern, teams that dominate the ball continuously and don't just have like little moments of brilliance. But he's still very young. He'll still evolve. And I think we'll mostly see him as a false nine for Germany. But if that doesn't work, I can see him play also as a number 10 or coming on as an impact sub. I think he will he will play a pretty important role for Germany in whatever position he'll play in. Thank you for indulging my selfishness, Raph. Um, the last question. <laughs> is there anything I haven't asked that you think is particularly interesting that you think people should know or might want to know about Germany and the national team? Oh, mm. <laughs> I love how that one stresses people. You know, when you deal with this on a 24-7 basis, you can't see the wood for the trees sometimes. So mm. better to have an outside perspective. Okay, how about this? How about, do you have a fun fact? Like one of your favorite things about the German team that whenever someone brings it up, you're just like, that makes me laugh or giggle or that's a fun thing. It could be anything. I mean, there's, there's a couple. There's one that Germany have only ever once played Brazil in the, in the World Cup. And that was in the 2002 final. And the other one is that we have a saying in Germany, which perhaps relevant to your earlier question about what Germany will or won't do. A bad Germany team makes it to the final. A good Germany team wins it. <laughs> That's interesting. All right. Raph, where can people follow you on Twitter if they don't already? Uh, Twitter is at Honigstein. And where can people get your work? Uh, mostly at The Athletic, but also Sky Germany, BT Sport, and Der Spiegel. Indeed. Raph, I thank you for taking the time, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Who do you guys think gets out of this group? Is it as complicated as it looks? Can we just put Germany, Spain down one and two? Or do you guys think Japan or Costa Rica can sneak something? I'm I'm going to be a wild card and say Spain and um, Japan made me through. I'm just going Germany to just, do it again? Back to back World Cups? Impossible. I'm just going to be, look, I may be wrong, but I'm just going to be wild, man. I, I want to be wild. I mean, I, I'm, I'll probably be wrong, but I just want to be wild. Are, are, are you going to go with half hope to the edge? No, no. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it fairly solid. Germany top the group, Spain come second. Both of those teams can reach the final. I'm really high on both of these teams because I rate both of their managers highly. I like that whoever gets out in the round of 16, Belgium probably has a test. That's what I like. Yeah. So I want to root for Spain and Germany just because... Again, half hope's term, I think that he used last week was legacy teams. I like that idea of just having all the big teams and that way you can't sneak out. It, it would be cool to see like Japan upset 
Spain or Germany and get into the round of 16. That would be nice. Or Costa Rica to come up with an upset. But I'm going to go Germany to top the group and Spain finish second. Shout out to all, all of our guests, Kai, Dan, Hugo, and Raf for joining us and giving their expertise on, on each country. You can follow me at Daniel to look. Hapo, where can you be found? Footballhot.com. You can find my writing over on The Athletic. You can find me on Twitter at Anchorman616. We will see you guys tomorrow with Group F. Talking Tactics Podcast, sometimes funny, sometimes serious, but always football. Indeed, peace. Sports Social Podcast Network.